Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Not a chance. This is the real world, not some fantasy game. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Brian. Hi. Speedrun. Today's episode... Today's episode is Chained to Fate, episode number four on Guns of the Patriots. Today we venture to South America as we lift the curtain on the second act of Metal Gear Solid 4. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. And I did want to start out with a really quick message I received on Patreon, patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, uh, where Tom Devane mentioned that he was surprised we didn't mention stories about how uh, modern-day drone pilots and bomb disposal teams actually use Xbox 360 controllers to control devices when, you know, disarming bombs or blowing up brown people and stuff like that. Um, it kind of is a tangent to Snake using the PS3 controller for Um, piloting the Metal Gear Mark II. So I thought that was a pretty astute observation, Um, whether that was the specific thing Kojima was referencing or it just kind of worked out that way. But obviously a big part about this game is that the line between video games and war is kind of basically blurring and how one is a feeder into the other. So uh, good comment. I appreciated that. Uh, Spec Ops the Line 2012. (laughs) There you go. Um, and if you can't tell, I am going to be completely owned by any Patreon comments. So if you comment there, I will feel compelled to read it here. So just so you know. We haven't yet talked about the narrative structure of this game, so I want to start there. We've generally worked through the previous entries as three-act stories, which is SOP for most popular art and can be applied to MGS4. But the game very specifically labels its five-act structure, which was laid down by 19th century German playwright Gustav Freytag, not Gustav Fring. Those of us who are products of Western education systems will primarily think of Shakespeare when it comes to five acts, and I think that's kind of deliberate as they play up the tragedy of Solid Snake. The five-act structure breaks down thusly, which I'll go over with its Guns of the Patriots analog. Act 1, Liquid Sun, is the exposition or introduction to the story, the game, and all the main elements of it, including the cast and setting, or the scenario for it. Act 2, Solid Sun, is the rising action. Um, The action started when Liquid started his hacking of SOP in the Middle East, which is called the Exciting Force, and that kind of launched the game's plot forward. Here we get better definition of the stakes and motives of our characters, things like the BMB core, Snake's health, Liquid's plan, all of that kind of comes into focus, as well as the final main cast members, Raiden and Vamp, being brought into the fold. Act 3, Third Son, is the climax or turning point. In popular discourse, climax has become somewhat synonymous with resolution, but here it just means the turning point of the story. Think of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, where the titular character is assassinated in the third act. For MGS4, this is where Guns of the Patriots actually happens, as Liquid Asla completes his insurrection. 
Act 4, Twin Sons, is called The Falling Action or Return, and well, it's where we return to Shadow Moses and the origins of the saga. Um, this is kind of the tra- tragic force, um, or sorry, the tragic fall of the story, as our heroes scramble to play catch-up and leave it all on the table, including Raiden, who leaves most of his limbs on the Shadow Moses dock. And then finally, we have Act 5, or Old Sun, which is our denouement, resolution, or revelation, all of which can apply to the ending of this game, as told to us by Naomi and Ocelot. It sees Snake do his last her- <laughs> It sees Snake do his last Herculean task, and we bring closure to the main conflict of the story. And then this game also has an epilogue called Naked Sin or Naked Sun, which helps put a cap on the entire Metal Gear saga. I apologize for our little eighth grade lit class over here, but I did want to also note that all of these acts share a name with one of the snakes of the saga. Liquid and Solid and Twin Sons refer to our main protagonist and antagonist. Third Son refers to Solidus, Old Son referring to Old Snake, and Naked Sin, Naked Son being Big Boss's codename from Snake Eater. And of course, Sun spelled S-U-N in this game, uh, perhaps referring to the Sun setting on the MGS Saga, which, you know, it didn't, um, but also doubles as Sun, i.e. male progeny, which is the link between Big Boss and the other snakes. In fairness, he, it, it, Sun, it, he doesn't, like, Solid does not come back, so mm-hmm. we make fun of him for, for not, not being the actual end, but in a way it was. Like, chronologically, this is the, like, everything else he does is... More just like he has gameplay ideas and he wants to tell Big Boss's story, but it's not really right. Like I think, as far as Kojima is concerned, this is the end of like the ba- the main story. Correct. Um. So in many ways, it still does apply that the sun is setting. It's just chronologically less so than the games he's going to develop. Yeah. Okay, I lied. One last bit of format stuff. Each act opens with a mission briefing segment, though in Act 1, this comes after the Gecko opener and main title card sequence. From here on out, we have scenes aboard the Nomad, or in Act 5, the USS Missouri, where Snake, Otacon, Sunny, and whoever else is around will set up the next act of the game. Prior to Act 2, Snake reawakens following the events in the Middle East. Johnny Sazaki, a.k.a. Akiba, had pulled Snake out of harm's way, and Snake himself was out for an entire day. Adekan gives Snake the sit rep. They had received an SOS from Naomi, begging to be rescued. The message had been encrypted as Soliton data, a.k.a. the Soliton radar you remember from the first two Metal Gear Solids, but Sunny decrypted it into video to retrieve the actual message. Naomi says she was captured by Liquid and forced to cooperate with his plan. Last episode, we mentioned the system derived heavily from Fox Die and first-generation nanomachines, which are in Snake and Gray Fox, so she was considered integral to his insurrection. Naomi's message allowed Sonny and Otacon to track the message to South America, which causes Campbell to chime in that one of Liquid's PMCs, Pierre Armament, Pierre. was basically Pierre, uh, was basically running things over there. As Campbell informs our team of the latest goings-on, a young lady can be seen behind Campbell on the Kodak. We'll get to her in a few minutes. Campbell gets the crew clearance to land at El Dorado International Airport in Colombia, and away we go with Act 2.
deeply are they involved in all of this? The Patriots, you mean? The data we got from Arsenal Gear was a load of crap. Twelve founders who have all been dead for a hundred years. Give me a break. We know they exist today. If the purpose of this battlefield control system is to control IDs, it fits in with their plans perfectly. Seizing control of the world's ID systems, and then using them to manipulate the economy and information flow. For the Patriots, that's the ultimate prize. You might say the Patriots are the embodiment of the war economy. Everything that Solidus feared five years ago, it's all come to pass. The Patriots are trying to protect their power, their own interests, by controlling the digital flow of information. We catch up with Snake mid-infiltration, inchworming his way along the jungle floor towards a nearby village. While the Patriots were obliquely mentioned in Act 1, here we get Snake specifically asking about their involvement and recapping the end of MGS2. Snake says that everything Solidus predicted basically came true, and be right back, I think Podcast Sans Frontieres needs to make Solidus Was Right merch to sell. But with what they know, it becomes clear that Liquid was raging against the Patriot's machine in some form or another. Snake feels the need to destroy both, but Campbell points out the system governs way more than just the war economy and may need to be protracted to maintain information security otherwise. It's a very neoliberal argument, (laughs) and sorry, vaguely reminds me of 2014's Captain America The Winter Soldier, where Fury wants to salvage Project Insight and the S.H.I.E.L.D. security apparatus, while Cap wants to destroy it. Which, you know, I might have an idea for a full Captain America Metal Gear Solid episode somewhere in the pipeline. I also like how Campbell says the Patriots are the embodiment of the war economy, which carries forward the meme of the boss saying the philosophers have become war itself. This entire discussion halts abruptly as chaos erupts in the village. The PMC Pievru armament has already rounded up the local rebels, but laughing octopus of the BMB Corps shows up to throw some kerosene on the whole mess. She's looking for Snake among the rebels, since that's how he arrived in the Middle East as well, and turns out she's not alone. That's right, I can't do a good Oscar Isaac, but somehow, Vamp has returned. We'll go into him fully next time out. But with no snake among the local militia, Vamp and Octopus leave the PMC to it, but not before Octopus shows off her face camo, mimicking the face of Old Snake to hopefully set the rebels against him. You can immediately undo Tentacle's bad PR when you take control of Snake. The PMC are getting ready to execute the captured rebels, but the player can take out the guards which will allow the captives to take up the PMC's dropped guns and fight back. It's a pretty easy way to help clear the area and also ingratiate yourself to the militia for the upcoming maps as they are heading in the same direction as you. There's also some solid gear here, including a sniper rifle and a South American militia outfit. Before we go too much further, we get a call from Campbell. He's assigned Snake a psychological evaluator from a combat stress platoon to help him deal with his mental health and well-being. This counselor turns out to be Rosemary of the Jack and Rose couple from MGS2. We don't need to do a full character breakdown here, but we can lay out some key plot points that occurred since Big Shell. Rose is once again voiced by Lara Cody. Jack and Rose were never able to make it 
Work following Metal Gear Solid 2 and Raiden's memories of being a child soldier consumed him. He turned to alcohol and developed a major drinking problem. Rose would have Jack's child, named John, but due to Raiden's erratic and violent behavior, she hid this fact from him and claimed she miscarried. Raiden would eventually flee, leaving Rosemary along with their son. This is where Campbell steps in. He orchestrates a sham marriage to help protect Rose and baby John from any patriot reprisal, especially after Raiden would help free Sonny from them. This fake marriage would also cause Meryl to think Roy as a womanizing shitbag and strain that relationship as well. As far as we know, straight Roy even, Campbell... even further, to be fair. Yeah. And as far as we know, uh, Roy Campbell and Rose never romantically or sexually entangled, but that's just as far as we know. And it's been a while since I mentioned Thrones on here, but as someone who's only into A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones, getting serious, Ned Stark protecting Jon Snow by claiming him as his own son vibes from all of this. Also Tyrion and Sansa. Mm-hmm. Snake presses both Rose and Roy on this, not knowing the full details until much, much later in the game. He's pretty forward to Campbell, seemingly ready to stop the mission and start some age gap discourse on him. In terms of gameplay, calling Rose will help you refill your psych meter. If Snake's psych is full, he'll say he's doing okay and Rose won't have much to say. Following a continue after a death, if you call Rose, she'll help you cope with the specific manner in which Snake just died. And if you kill some harmless animals and call Rose, she'll say you need psychiatric evaluation after the mission. Fun fact, depending on the day, calling Rose will showcase her in different color sweaters. Less fun fact, shaking the PS3 controller can make one or both of her breasts jiggle. Usually I can find something to extract from Kojima's various pervs, but I've got nothing here. Showing off the PS3's technology. (laughs) Oh yes, sometimes you just gotta do stuff for the technology, man. It's 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 forward thinking. Futurism, baby. (laughs) The map... (laughs) Jesus. Uh... (laughs) The the maps open up into several mountainous jungle territories with various waterways and open fields to add to the geodiversity. This is one of the more fun stretches of MGS4 and the most resembling the gameplay of MGS3. There's lots more space in these maps than in the Middle East, but a lot more enemies too, and some big firefights if you really want to wreck some shit. The first of these big firefights is at the power plant. Here, there is a full-on assault of local militia against a PMC stronghold. The power plant is well fortified, with trenches, barriers, gun placements, and strong walls. You can choose to sneak through or around much of this, but I often find it fun to help the rebels take the plant. You can even blow the power on the entire facility, which helps Snake Snake to safely use the power cables to shimmy over to a weapons cache. Uh, Anything you want to throw in here about any of this? I mean, it's... Uh, it's hard. It's it's weird because it's not that deep, but it is like you said. It's the most like MGS three, so I really appreciate it. It's also just like uh, even if you stretch it out, it's what twenty minutes is what I remember at best. <laughs> yeah, so it's yeah, it's yeah. kind of disappointing. Like it's I wish more of the game was that. It's one of the few like sandbox mm-hmm. areas, but it's it feels like the first sandbox area, and it ends up being like basically the only sandbox area. So it's kind of depressing. You can maybe throw in Shadow Moses, but without the like regular enemy patrols like you're yeah. used to, it's 
definitely a different vibe. Um, I mean, it's basically like this all the way up until you get to Naomi in this act, but this is really the most Metal Gear Solid portion of the entire game, which is kind of, you know, disappointing when the last three acts of the game are very much set pieces and not this kind of action. When Snake clears the power plant, he finds a quiet spot to light up. But before he can enjoy his cigarette, Little Grey pops up out of nowhere to steal it. Drebin Striker decamos itself, and our favorite gun launderer invites Snake in for a quick chit-chat. Drebin has done some digging into who Snake is since their first encounter, and also has some details about the Patriots that we'll get to in due time. His main purpose here is to set up the Beauty and the Beast unit, and that's what we're going to do as well. Being bays. You never heard of them? They're Beauty and the Beast. Together they're called the B&B Corps. They're a squad of enhanced female soldiers, belong to the PMCs. Anytime there's a mess that needs cleaning up, they're on the scene leading the elites. That's a female? Probably freelancers hired by the PMCs. They're run out of a separate parent organization. Guess it's time for good old Drebin to let you in on a few things. The Beauty and the Beast unit, or Beauty and the Beast Corps, B&B or BB Corps for short, are your enemy special forces unit for this game, carrying on the meme of Foxhound, Dead Cell, and the Cobra unit before it. While all those other units existed as military forces in their own right, this so-called Snakehound unit in MGS4 exists pretty much just to hunt down Solid Snake. The four members of the team, all women, are Laughing Octopus, Raging Raven, Crying Wolf, and Screaming Mantis. Octopus. Raven. Wolf. Mantis. From the concept art, there appear to be two male members, Snake Man and Adam, which could have been analogs to Liquid and Ocelot from MGS1's Foxhound unit. Perhaps obviously, all members take a codename from other Foxhound members and an emotion from the Cobra unit, but also weaponry from Dead Cell. We'll go over all this briefly when we touch each B&B individually, as well as their related private military companies. These bosses aren't as interesting as their Foxhound counterparts, nor as thematically poignant as the Cobra unit, so there'll be less Nor as cool or funny as Dead Cell. Yes. So there's just going to be a lot less on them singularly going forward. Each boss has a beauty version, which is the woman underneath, and a beast mode, the armored mech they are primarily seen in. According to Drebin, these soldiers cannot survive long outside the mech suits. The voice performances are a mix of men and women for the beast, with just an actress for the beauty. We'll describe the design of both, starting with the beauty side. I believe it's just Fred Tadashore for the the beast yeah, it is yeah yeah um, if, if so you, there is only- if you need if you Go need a, a, a angry sounding monster guy that's that's who you get yeah, especially you get if you have an- yeah quality performer yeah it's like getting frank welker if you have an animal in your cartoon it's just like yeah. that's the one guy you call for it yep Kojima's horniness remains off the charts as he wanted the women underneath the armor to originally appear in the nude For several reasons, this couldn't be done, so cat suits were used in motion capture. The form-fitting suits shown for the beauties can be seen bearing barcodes and plugs and cords connecting them to the mech suits and some sort of fluid dripping from them. It's very similar to the suits worn in Neon Genesis Evangelion, down to the dripping LCL fluid. It's also um, 
Almost certainly a Matrix reference. Mm -hmm. Come on. The outer bee suits are all mechanical approximations of the animal codename. Octopus has tentacles, raven wings, etc. Of course, I found a Marvel parallel here, liking it to members of Spider-Man's rogues gallery, perhaps even specifically the Sinister Six. Doc Ock, the Vulture, even the Rhino can be seen in the design of the outer beast suits. When you defeat each beast, their armor opens up and the beauty tumbles out. She'll struggle to her feet, and Snake has to subdue the beauty before she wraps Snake up, which will start to eat away at your life bar. If you wait around, the screen will go all white, and you can snap pictures as the beauty poses for you. And if you place her in iPod songs, you may even trigger dance numbers. What happens after the beauty is subdued depends on how you beat the boss. If you used lethal arms, the beauty will be seen burning up. If non-lethal, the beauty will curl up into a ball and go to sleep. Non-lethal wins will earn you the beauty face camo for that boss and a statue of the boss. Again, none of these are as rewarding as the MGS3 rewards were. A statue of, of that boss, not a statue of the boss. <laughs> yes. That would, that would be cooler and better. No, we, we have to wait till MGSV and the hospital to get a statue of the boss. Yeah. John Cucho's Beauty and the Beast is one of Kojima's favorites and is supposedly the inspiration for the name here, while alluding to the broader fable as well. But instead of an external Beauty and the Beast romance, the allegory is implied internally, representing the human heart at conflict with itself. Each member of the B&B core suffers from PTSD. Recall in our opening episode how we mentioned trauma and PTSD would be a recurring theme. Admittedly, all the backstories for the members are kind of ludicrous, both in violence and circumstance, and just amped up versions of what Vamp's backstory was in Sons of Liberty. War-torn country, small village, evil invaders had to kill their own family members, an animal was there to symbolize the carnage, yada yada. We'll, you know, get the overwrought details or not when we get to each boss. War transforms a snake into beasts. The broader message being a good one, even if clumsily handled. Ultimately, war is a dehumanizing act, not just of soldiers and scientists, but of everyone, including the innocents, especially the innocents. War is a violation of the human covenant of all that is good in this world. When it occurs, it strips us of our humanity, leaving us only with our pain and our sorrow and our... Wait, sorry, I didn't mean to read from the game script. But it is supposed to be tragic, and I think reflects back at Snake and Raiden too. The BMB Corps were all child soldiers, just like Raiden is, and, Raiden, or, and Snake was created just to be a phantom of Big Boss, the world's greatest soldier. It reminds me of the Jorah Mormont quote from the third A Song of Ice and Fire book, A Storm of Swords. There is a savage beast in every man, and when you hand that man a sword or spear and send him forth to war, the beast stirs. Sorry, I can't do Ian Glenn's voice. But ultimately, the B&B Corps ends up being among the weakest MGS boss units. None of the characters have much depth, their backstories are overwrought, and none of the battles with them really seem to elevate to that all-time Metal Gear Solid tier, like Psycho Mantis or The End. Which, to be fair, is a high bar, but I think the Vamp, Ocelot, and Rex vs. Ray fights end up being slightly more memorable overall. See, I want to say that they're, they're not the weakest because of the Peace Walker bosses, but the Peace Walker bosses are at least cool robots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess that's a good point. But it's kind of like these are the last real traditional Metal Gear yes. Solid bosses, it feels like. Yeah. You have what, like the man in 
Man on Fire and Quiet, but most of the boss fights in V are generally um, the skulls or, you know, no, just the skulls. Um, yeah, yeah, versions, different versions of the skulls. And then, yeah, Peace Walker has the, has the robots. The robots are good, but it's just a whole different, yeah. it's, you know, kind of like Monster Hunter style yes. at a certain point. It's not Metal Gear Solid style boss fights. Yeah, it's kind of a wet fart to go out on. I think I think a couple of them are okay. I actually like the one in this act. I think is a good boss fight. Mm-hmm. I think Octopus is probably my favorite one. I, I would agree with that. You know, we'll, we'll at the end somewhere in this entire podcast run, we'll probably do a thing where we rank or at least mm-hmm. list our top boss fights. Um, I'd be shocked if any of them from the Beauty and the Beast core make either of our like top five or ten. No, I don't think but so. We'll see. We leave Drebin, and we have a few more maps to sneak through to get to Naomi's location. I want to mention here that while all this has been going on, we've started getting Kodak calls from Raiden himself. He clues you in to upcoming ambushes and says he's waiting in the wings to help you out. When Snake presses him on where he's been, Raiden says he's been working to retrieve the body of Big Boss for Matku Pluku, aka Big Mama. We'll give Raiden a solid once-over once he appears at the end of this act in the next episode. We make our way to the Vista Mansion, which is right around where Naomi is being held. The rebels attack the estate with the bulldozer, and a massive firefight takes place in the surrounding pavilion. Anything you want to add about these? It's good. Again, it, it's the, the, the mansion's cool. The mansion's a cool area. This is probably... I feel bad because I, this... This setup kind of got over overwritten by MGS5 for me, by the mansion in MGS5. Mm-hmm. But um, oh, yeah. I do think Act 2 in general is the best act gameplay-wise. But even then, Easily. it's more it's it's not even like it's stands out from other Metal Gear games or like there's dozens of, of areas in three that I like more. It's just this one is like, hey, it's a Metal Gear game for a little bit, and then it stops. <laughs> yeah. And it, there are some um before you get to the Vista Mansion, there are some kind of like other strongholds, like there's yeah, a containment yeah. facility and stuff here. But it's like none of the fun where an MGS3 would go and you try to like bomb a food depot or a weapons depot. Um, you're not really doing any. It's of pretty that straightforward here. sneaking. There's not. There's not a whole lot of like, again, like sandbox. The stuff I think we both love so much about Metal Gear, the, the stuff that Hitman now is is doing, where it's mm-hmm. just like you can go fuck around with people, mess around right. with AI, with um, AI that, routines. That's that's the fun of it. Yeah, that really doesn't rear its head again till MGSV. You know, Peace Walker has some of it. Peace Walker has some. Um, Peace Walker just doesn't have enough. It's not a big enough game. Like, yeah, or it's made in such a yeah. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll save it for the Peace Walker discussion. Snake has to make his way to the top of the mansion and through a secret basement passage that comes up on Naomi's research facility. It's decorated with a blue rose garden, which becomes a symbol of sorts in this game, but Song of Ice and Fire reference number three incoming makes me think of Lyanna Stark and Jon Snow, as the blue winter rose is heavily associated with that storyline, or at least it was in the books. Snake makes his way in, though it seems something is just off screen watching and waiting to attack. Naomi is on the phone with Liquid, and when she wraps up, Snake makes his presence known. We have a lot to go over here as Naomi dumps a ton of exposition on us, but first we'll start with our character deep dive on Naomi Hunter, a.k.a. Brian's absolute favorite character in any Metal Gear game. Snake, 
I knew you'd come. You and I, neither of us can escape our fate. Yes, Naomi returns after her last canonical appearance in the original Metal Gear Solid, though she does appear in the Snake Tales portion of MGS2 Substance. This time, however, Hale is not giving the performance in a British accent like she did in the original title. As a reminder, the original MGS support staff was supposed to have an international feel to it, uh, see Mei Ling's Chinese accent there, but Hale had dropped the accent for the GameCube remake, Twin Snakes, and thusly carried the American accent meme forward to this game. If you recall from the post-credit stinger of that first game, Ocelot obliquely refers to a woman he's going to surveil, which most likely refers to Naomi. We've already gone over how the system is derived from Fox Die, so she was always integral to the anti-Patriots res- insurrection. Naomi was actually imprisoned following the Shadow Moses incident, but was broken out a few weeks later. Official reports pinned this jailbreak on Solid Snake, but Nastasha Romanenko's in-universe tell-all book In the Darkness of Shadow Moses tells us the truth of Ocelot being the one to free her. Well, free her from jail, she becomes his captive thereafter. There's not much design-wise to talk about here. She's usually seen in a lab coat with a revealing neckline, as well as a skirt and heels, and please don't ask me to be more specific about women's fashion, I don't really know shit about it. She'll occasionally have a long brown coat like we see in the Mideast chapter. When we do return to Shadow Moses later in this game, we find out that Naomi is among the walking dead. She's been diagnosed with terminal cancer and should be dead by all accounts, but she was using nanomachines to keep her alive, which is something similar that's going on with Vamp. But once she had executed her plan, she chose to die in the hangar at Shadow Moses. Without helping the rest of the world cure cancer with nanomachines that she... Mm-hmm. Just like a uh, thrown out, you know, just thrown out there. Oh yeah, I did this, and I'm not going to tell you how to do it. Goodbye. Thanks, Naomi. Yeah. Um, and then I do want to add that she does uh, choose to die at in the hangar at Shadow Moses, which is the same spot her adopted brother Frank Yeager, aka Gray Fox, had died nine years prior. Now I'm just really mad at her for not curing cancer for the entire world. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, Speaking of, at the end of Act 2 and the pursuant mission briefing of Act 3, we see Naomi show a lot of concern for Raiden, who is physically devastated. While Raiden's support of Snake would help her plan along, I I do think she felt some responsibility for Raiden too, as he had undergone much the same fate as Grey Fox in becoming a cybernetic ninja. I've mentioned her plan a couple times now, and we'll get into it more in future episodes. But basically, she joined up with our heroes to get close to Otacon, which who wouldn't with his daddy energy, um, so, so she could secretly slip him Fox Alive, a computer program that could take down GW, the Patriot AI Liquid Ocelot had absconded with during the Big Shell incident. She did call an audible, though. Instead of Otacon, the program went to Sunny instead, who completed the virus that would take down GW. Sunny had lived in the confines of the Patriots' AI all her life, so she had more intimate knowledge than anyone else. After that, she fled and returned to Ocelot, because for her Fox Alive plan to work, Liquid would need to take control of the system first. There's a lot of steps to get there, though, so we'll leave off for now. Her plan mostly makes sense. That's not any problem I have with her character. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's yeah. one of the it's it's that it's that annoying sort of hack writer thing where it's somebody. The character's motivations don't make any sense until later, until after they're dead. But 
that's fine. That people do that. Yeah, like, writers do that. I don't mean people do that. Only- <laughs> Naomi plays on a lot of the same themes on science as Otacon. She's explicitly saying she's atoning for her sins, which includes Vamp, Fox Die, and the research that kept Gray Fox alive in a completely dead sort of way. I also want to mention this episode's title, Chain to Fate, is a line that Naomi drops in this cutscene, but also was in her coda at the end of MGS1. If you recall, the quote goes, You mustn't allow yourself to be chained to fate, to be ruled by our genes. Humans can choose the type of life they want to live. The important thing is that you choose life and then live. An MGS1 quote. (laughs) We can't be mixing a better game here, sir. Oh, that's all MGS4 does from this point forward. (laughs) What? Uh, Before I wrap up, though, I want to give Brian a chance to vent about this character. I basically already have, honestly, like... There's not a whole lot else to say. It's it's annoying. I think, like I said, the most annoying thing is that it Naomi is already a good character from a different game who just had to be thrown into this game because that's what this game has to do. And I don't want to say retroactively make her worse because I don't believe in that personally. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think a bad ending ruins good things that happened before in a game or a movie. I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess, I, I guess it can if it's like, there's some ways it can, but. I'm thinking specifically like Mass Effect 3. People didn't like that ending, but the game is still good. It's a good game. That's fine. Yeah. I think with video games in particular, games, it's just a little bit of a tangent, but uh, it's very difficult to make a 10-minute ending to a 30-hour experience that feels satisfactory in any way. So there are, um, I would I, say, maybe 10 to 15 games with good endings that I've ever played. So go ahead. Yeah, no, as I was say, you're basically reading my defense of Game of Thrones following the, you know, very poorly received final season i'm like dude seasons like one through four are still like pretty top-notch television it doesn't ruin it and each yeah yeah it it just it and i I don't know it's i i don't think it's possible and you know i really dislike the rise of skywalker and it does kind of make the force awakens worse um when the same guy doesn't like follow through on anything he said Mm -hmm. but you know you know force awakens is fine but it's the, the difference with that is that force awakens like Metal Gear Solid is a complete... Metal Gear Solid 1 is a complete entity on its own. Force Awakens is not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, so, like... Um, so, like, yeah. It's a, a lot of the appeal of the Force Awakens is just look at all this stuff we're setting up. Hope, check, tune back in to see us pay it off, and then they don't pay it off. So that can be That can be ruined by that kind of thing. But, like, this game being mildly disappointing in a lot of ways does not make Metal Gear Solid 1 worse or anything like that. Um, with one exception, it does for 3, but that's we'll get into that later. Um, I don't know. It's just more disappointing because it's Naomi is a character you uh, you mostly, I think, don't like at least as interesting in MGS1 and then in this, she's just the plot device character. There's nothing, there's really nothing interesting or, or like compelling about her at all it's really disappointing the terrible way to use a returning character yeah they kind of just kind of gloss over any pathos that might be Mm. with that character um like if she was grappling with you know the events of shadow moses still her betrayal then trying to get back on solid snake's good side um i did there's stuff you could do with her but she very much is there just to kind of move the plot forward each time she shows Yeah, snake doesn't even Um, care he's just like hey snowy what's up like he doesn't give a (laughs) shit yeah no it's it's just kind of weird. I, I I think I like that they tried to bring her back because they're just trying to bring characters back, but just I don't like her usage. 
Um, like if she was part of Snake's support staff in some way, like more meaningfully, um, that could have maybe worked. Um, or if she was just like big bad the entire way, maybe that's a way to work. But um, this tries to kind of thread that needle and it doesn't really work uh, as a character. Um, the plot stuff is fine. I don't have too much of a problem with it, but it's just not very good. It's, it's poorly done. Yeah. And uh, to wrap up here, I want to make sure we cover the main bits of exposition she provides in the scene. We covered a lot of this in the old Snake analysis, so I hopefully won't repeat myself too much. Uh, during this cutscene, she gives Snake a full medical analysis, including a CAT scan. Snake's aging, again, is by design, Terminator genes, and those can't be reversed. He's got about six months till his body craps out. The fox dye virus that lived in his blood is now mutated and is now indiscriminate. Um, it no longer picks its targets and can soon possibly kill just about anyone Snake comes into contact with. Thus, Naomi gives Snake about three months before he turns into a walking epidemic. He's got a job to do for now, yes, but once Liquid is defeated, he can stop the spread of fox dye by killing himself. Although seppuku vignettes and trailers and the main menu screen finally have some context. Naomi also notes that there's a new strain of fox dye in Snake, one that was inserted recently. Snake immediately suspects Drebin's injection in the Middle East, which allowed him to use laundered guns. The purpose of this new fox dye is unclear until the very end of the game. At least he, at least he suspects properly this time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and doesn't spend half the game being like, what? Fox dye. <laughs> Finally, Naomi tells Snake what happened in the Middle East. Liquid attempted to disable SOP, but all the suppressed emotions in the soldiers came out, causing them all to go mad. He has since altered his plan. Pray he doesn't alter it any further. <laughs> Instead of disabling the system, he's going to commandeer it. Whew. With all that exposition out of the way, Naomi tells Snake they're being watched and that Snake has to get Naomi out. She can't go willingly. But before they get a move on, PMC troops come in and take her away. Snake isn't able to get pursuit, however, as a unit of frogs show up. After clearing the lab, the game's first boss fight starts as we meet Laughing Octopus of the B&B unit. People suffering. People hurting. People dying. Quick note from that quote, we get our first canonical fuck in the English version of Metal Gear Solid series. There was a fuck in the Japanese version of Metal Gear Solid 3, where Eva says fuck you to Volgan, but that was localized to go to hell in the American version. So Laughing Octopus, aka Tentacles, uh, the beauty voice is done by Paula Tijo, and the beast voice is done by Fred Tad. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce this. You said it. Tad Ashore. Or, yeah. or Tadashori. I'm not actually sure. I always thought it was Tadashori. Uh, yeah, we'll go with Fred Tadashori Tadashor, for now. Be super Italian in honor of the Sopranos prequel just about to release. Well, it'll probably be out when you hear this. Yeah. And the motion capture is done by Lyndall Jarvis, who is a South African model. Of course, all the uh, motion captures for the beauties are actual models. The backstory, again, which is overwrought and ridiculous, uh, there's a Scandinavia town called the Devil's Village. Their primary meat for eating was octopus. 
a cult attack the town one night and they made this one girl kill her own family and laugh while they do it. Yada, yada, villain origin story, Laughing Octopus. The associated PMC with Laughing Octopus is Pieru Armament, which is a French-based PMC. And their slogan, which I'm not going to read the French version of it, but it's basically Arms of the Octopus, Arms for Your War. All the PMCs that we're going to cover have kind of a speciality or specific aspect to them. With Pievru Armament, it's that they are arms dealers in that they manufactured firearms, supposedly 51 million firearms manufactured every year. And the logo for them is a skull with tentacles, which is a pretty gnarly logo, all things considered. Now, going into the boss fight itself, we'll start with the arena. Um, It all takes place in Naomi's lab, uh, which has windows and rafters, which make it easy for, uh, I want to call her Ak as in Doc Ak, but I mean Laughing Octopus, to move in and out of. Um, There's a lot of tight corners, lots of objects in the playing field in terms of mannequins, closets, lockers, medical equipment. And this whole setting is meant to play on re-emerging themes of genetics and medicine in Metal Gear Solid, which factored heavily in the very first title, but kind of took a backseat in the following two. In terms of weapons and tactics, Laughing Octopus has four tentacles on her headpiece that can be used to bludgeon or electrocute you, block gunfire, and climb and swing around. She also sports a FN P90 gun, and both this gun and the tentacles are supposed to be weapons that Solidus used in Sons of Liberty. Additionally, she also has Octocamo plus Face Camo, uh, which uh, Otacon will let us know both derive from DARPA design, um, DARPA, of course, being a key part of the Metal Gear Solid world building. And she will often hide during the fight, often posing as a background item or as a picture on the wall or as, you know, a box with uh, stuff coming out of it. Yeah, not hiding very well, but it's still cool. It's still cool concept. It's a great concept. The problem is as soon as you put on the night vision goggles, you'll find her instantly. Yeah. Um, And then she'll also release a cloud of black smoke, uh, which is supposed to kind of be like ink. And she'll also launch explosives that will seek you out, go around corners that you can destroy. And then she'll also roll on the ground in an attack that will knock Snake off his feet. In terms of fighting Laughing Octopus, as mentioned, the night vision on the Solid Eye is basically your best friend. Um, It'll basically find all of her hiding spots except when she, like, sticks to a wall, at which point she'll be translucent, but you can see the outline of her body if you look closely. Um, As you know me, I am very non-lethal in the Metal Gear Solid games, and to take on Laughing Octopus, I generally use the shotgun with the V-ring, which is a non-lethal round, and then when she's um, you know, kind of camouflaged and hiding, um, and I locate her, then I'll use the Mosin Nagant uh, tranquilizer sniper rifle. But this is something that you generally won't have on your first playthrough of this game, just because you won't have the DP required to actually purchase this weapon until usually into Act 3 or Act 4. Anything you want to add about how you take her on? Well, see, I've only since I've only actually beaten her the one time, I just killed the shit of her. Yeah. I think I use a lot of P90. It um it makes it more of a uh, cat and mouse style hunting fight, which is fun. It's fun to be mm-hmm. the, like it's if you if you play quickly enough, it, you you don't get to be the hunter in Metal Gear very often, and that's fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is a place where you're actually generally taking the offense to her, um, as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, I will say when I have done lethal playthroughs, usually the weapon I go with is just the M4, the custom one that you pick up from Drebin in Middle East. 
and I use it mostly because it's really customizable. I add a scope to the top, and then you can add a bottom compartment that's either a shotgun or a grenade launcher. Um, so that can be very effective uh, when taking on bosses because if you run out of ammo with, say, the assault rifle, you can easily, uh, you know, fire off a couple shotgun rounds uh, before you go and reload. So it can be mm-hmm. a pretty versatile tool. And then we also mentioned earlier that um, you'll get a uh, all the bosses, regardless of how you beat them, will have a victory token or a drop. Um, with uh, Laughing Octopus, you get the face camo, which uh, is basically, you know, rounds out your Octa camo outfit um, and can help you get to upwards of 99% uh, camouflage index in various uh, settings. So it's probably the most useful out of the ones yeah. you'll actually get. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I generally like it. I think it's a good good item and i generally wear it except i take it off for cutscene so i can see old snake's beautiful face with octopus out of the way snake now has to track naomi to wherever she's been taken but we'll save that for next time fighting you cleansed her mind all right enough chit chat there's other beasts out there in them woods watch your back so that's mission complete for this episode our frequency is podcastsansfrontieres at gmail.com and at podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram. Remember, you can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash manuclearbomb. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I've been Brian. Nanos got me to where I am today. Yay, Nanos. We love Nanos. Don't we, folks? <laughs> Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, here's to you. It's kind of a wet fart to go out on. I think I think a couple of them are okay. I actually like the one in this act. I think is a good boss fight because mm-hmm. it's it's the it's one of the only it has like a different. It's not directly aping a previous fight. It's Vulcan Raven, if anybody, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I I gotta say this is probably the most unique because yeah, you look at uh, Raven. That's you know, it's just a multi. It's a it's 
uh, the Fury fight with verticality added mm-hmm. is what mm-hmm. uh, the Raven fight is. Uh, the Wolf fight is the same thing as fucking uh, the Sniper it, Wolf. Which is wolf. It's, it's good. Like, it's a good fight. I think it's a good boss fight, but it's not. Yeah. It just makes All you of think these of are Sniper good. Wolf. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just none of them. Uh, Screaming Mantis is kind of annoying. It's not really that great, but. I like the Raven one just as, like, a gameplay section. Just to be able to use bullets and shoot stuff. Like, that's fun, but. Yeah, it's not very good. I think Octopus is probably my favorite one. I, I would agree with that. So that's 4620. Ooh. Do you hear that? Mm-hmm. It's feeding time, that's why. Meow. <laughs> <laughs>